Just to open with some reflection on God's word from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 down to the end of that little section, 34. So I'll read that as a kickoff point for us. Matthew 6, verses 25 and following. And this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap uh, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or drink or wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right. This little breakaway from our main topic, anthropology, think about anxiety, very human issue. Uh, Here's what we'll do. What is it? All right, so we need to understand it to fight it. What is it? Why is it so prevalent? Uh, What is it? One more time, a little bit of a deeper dive, and then finally a few things to deal with it. Okay, we'll try to get through that all. So let me first go to the experts on anxiety. So the, many of you will know the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychology. It's the most important publication on psychology in the world. They're up to edition five right now. And uh, this is what the DSM says, the experts say about anxiety. Okay, this is what they say it is. Uh, I'll just give you part of the definition, will be enough. Fear is the emotional response to real or perceived threats. If you have a threat in your life, you, get a, you become afraid, right? That's what they're saying. Whereas anxiety is anticipation, the fear of anticipation of a future threat, okay? Now, they do something very helpful there. They cast the distinction uh, between threats that are actually right in front of you that you should be afraid of and threats that are in your future that you might fear as well, and they rightly tell us the very basic thing, that, f- that anxiety is a type of fear. Okay? Anxiety is an emotion of fearfulness. It's a type of fear, but there's lots of types of fear, so we've got to think about that together. Uh, however, that definition also I find to be very unhelpful in a lot of ways, so I think that I can define anxiety better than the, than the experts. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, they say more than that. But, but let me give you, I think I, I printed my definition in the handout, I think. Uh, yeah, is there? Yeah, yeah. So the second one is my definition, uh, which, which says what they say, but it says more, okay? And here it is. It's a mouthful. It's too much to digest in one reading, all right? So we'll explain it. We'll work through it. Anxiety is an emotion of fear where we use the capacity of the human imagination to construe hypothetical circumstances of loss, which then manifest in our soul and our body as angst 
and various forms of illness. All right? Too much to digest in one reading. Definitely. That's okay. Uh, All right. Let's talk about it. Here's an example, an illustration to make it a little more clear um, that other people have used in the past. Uh, If you're in Edinburgh, I'll just use Edinburgh, and you're on Princess Street. I'm sure almost everybody here has been there. Um, And, you know, you you decide to cross Princess, Princess Street and you misjudge the timing of the bus. You know, it's coming, the 34 <laughs> is coming a little bit faster than you thought. What do you do? You know, you, you, your body kicks into, your autonomous nervous system gets triggered, is what happens. Um, and you race across so that you don't die, right? That's fear, and uh, fear is good. Fear is a gift of God. It's one of the common grace gifts of God in a world that's fallen. You need fear. Uh, you, need, uh, you need to be afraid of stuff. If you're not afraid of stuff, if you're not afraid of that bus, the bus is going to win. Um, right? So fear is good. It's a gift of God. Uh, and so that's what the DSM says. Fear is an, is an anxiety. Uh, sorry, not anxiety. An emotion you experience in normal situations of a normal threat. Immediate threat, like the bus. Um... But what the DSM says about anticipated threats needs to be thought about more carefully. Because what I want to do is say to you that there is a difference between anxiety and stress. They're not the same. So we use them, we, confl- we speak about them in conflated ways. And we say, I'm worried, I'm, I'm stressed, and I'm anxious. But I want to say that anxiety is different than stress and worry. So let's just... For, for my purpose of my definition, I want to bracket off stress and worry as different words. Okay, so let me give you another example. Uh, you've got, let's say, you've got a huge exam coming next Friday. And it's like the make or break. You know, if you do well on this, you do well in life. If you don't do well on this, you know, that's never a thing, by the way. But let's just, uh, if you don't do well on this, you don't do well in life, let's say. And it's an anticipated threat. It's coming. It's a future threat. And you should be worried about it. There's nothing wrong about being worried about that, right? Because that stress and that worry you feel is just the weight of the responsibility of a task that you need to accomplish. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Now, it can become a bad thing. So being stressed because you have a lot of work to do is not a bad thing until it becomes anxiety. And anxiety is a second movement, something greater than mere stress, Right, So sometimes uh, stress makes a lot of sense. So let me give you another example where stress makes sense. Concern, righteous concern. All right, well, that's a better term for it. Uh, you know, you, you, you go in to the doctor, some, your, your family member goes into the doctor. All of us have experienced this and will, if you haven't yet. And there's a spot on the scan. And you're waiting, you have to, you know, however long, you have to wait two weeks for them to come and tell you, what is that? Uh, there is an appropriate level of righteous concern in that. You're afraid. You should be. It's an anticipated threat. And that's not anxiety. It doesn't have to be anxiety. That's actually uh, very normal in the world God made. He gave us fear. And fear can often be really good. Okay, so instead, and this is just uh, explaining my definition a little more. Anxiety instead is bad or inappropriate. Same thing. Inappropriate forms of fear about hypothetical possibilities of loss that are not immediate threats or even objects of likely concern. Okay, so 
Anxiety happens, and I, I give about bad illustration because here's how we should say it. Anxiety occurs when you think that the way you perform on that exam is going to determine the course of your life. That's anxiety. So it's not the concern that I really need to do well on this exam and I need to prep and I'm stressed about it. Anxiety is when you use your capacity, one of the aspects of the image of God, your capacity to imagine things, right? So animals, we don't think, can uh, project images about the future, right? Imagine alternative scenarios, but you can, right? We do it all the time, don't we? It's when you take this gift of imagination that you have and you construe hypothetical circumstances of loss that are not actually the threat in front of you, right? So the threat in front of you is failing, but the threat in front of you is not that your life will be ruined. So that's a, that's a second thing. That's an act of fearfulness based on hypothetical imagination of circumstances that aren't real. And so another way to say it is that when you're anxious, you play the prophet. You prophesy things that don't exist and that are not immediate threats or future threats. Not in any real way, not in any obvious way, right? So you, in other words, you catastrophize. You catastrophize the actual threat in front of you. You take something that's real and you turn it into something that's not real. You catastrophize it. Now, is it possible? Is it possible that failing an exam could ruin your life? Oh, well, it's possible, but it's anxiety because it's not an actual anticipated threat. It's not something that's likely to take place, all right? So it's, anxiety is a step of emotional fearfulness where you catastrophize. It's beyond stress. It's beyond worry. So one more example. We'll move on. Uh, who can drive? Who, has, who drives? Yeah, most of you, yeah. Um, I did drive, and then the UK told me that although my US license makes me perfectly legal and safe for 12 months, all of a sudden on day 366, uh, for some reason, I'm no longer safe anymore to drive on the roads. So I'm in the process right now of seeking the full license again. Um, uh, you drive, so one, your mom or dad or whoever at some point you know, put you in the car the first time and said, okay, like, this, is, this is number one. You're going out on the road by yourself. Uh, this is it. And you better believe that it's completely appropriate for, for your parent or guardian to be deeply stressed and concerned about that, right? To say, you know, I love you. I don't want you to die. Like, I want you to live. And that's not anxiety, you know? Now, what would be anxiety is when they allow that to become a hypothetical imagination of all sorts of worst case scenarios and to let that roll and roll and roll into a snowball of fearfulness and be consumed by it from the inside out. That's anxiety, right? There's appropriate concern. There's appropriate stress, if we can use that word, and worry. And then there's anxiety and they're separate things. All right, let's go to the Bible now. And let me give you some examples of this. Um, uh, this is essentially how I think the Bible plays it out. Uh, so we see this word anxiety show up three times in Matthew chapter 6. It shows up one time in Philippians 4. And it shows up uh, 19 times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew form, deaga. Um, the Greek word merimnao has a total of 28 times across the New Testament. And then it has subor- uh, kind of alternative forms. We'll see one of those in just a minute in the Mary and Martha story about Jesus. Um, the Bible addresses anxiety a lot. It takes it pretty seriously. So the Bible does a lot by way of psychology. 
And uh, anxiety is one of those. And one of the things the Bible shows us is that anxiety is really complex, really complex, because you are very complex as an emotional creature. So um, just a few verses. Just don't try to flip there because I'm going to move through it fast. But just listen. Proverbs 1430 says a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes your bones rot. All right. So what is it saying? Uh, It's saying in Proverbs it, the, the author of Proverbs here knows something very important, that because you are both heavenly and earthly, spirit and body, that anything your spirit does affects the body and anything your body does affects the spirit. So we call that psychosomatic holism. Psycho meaning psychology, your spirit, your psyche. Soma is body, somatic, whole, you're one. It's another way of saying what we've already said. You're earthly and heavenly at the same time. You're psychosomatic whole. The Bible gets it. Uh, the Bible gets what you know, people just now in the 20th century started to write about. That the body affects the mind, the mind affects the body. Freud told us that, but the Bible told us a lot longer. Uh, the Bible beat, beat all those guys to it. And that's what it says here. It says that if you have a tranquil, peaceful heart, it gives, that's a soul thing, right? To have peace. It gives life to your body. All right. And uh, if you have envy, it actually destroys your bones. This is a rots your bones. And uh, I'm not a doctor, but I do know from the medicine professionals I talk to about this, they say that that's, it's very true. Uh, you don't need a doctor actually to know this, right? Because the first way you experience, how do you know you're anxious? I've heard people talk about how they went to the doctor and then they sent them to the psychologist. And the psychologist told them, you have an anxiety problem. And they never, they said, no, I don't. And they're realizing it for the first time. And what, how do they know? Why did they go to the doctor? Because they had gastrointestinal issues. They had gastroesophageal reflux problems, right? Their hands were always sweaty, sweaty palms. They had issues, pins and needles that wouldn't stop coming back. One of the first ways you know that you have an anxiety, that you're struggling with anxiety is you feel it physically. It affects your stomach, it affects your, um, your feet, your hands, all sorts of parts. And you know it because, it because you're ill. It actually makes you ill because you are a psychosomatic whole. And so the Bible comes and says um, something very important. And that's that anxiety as a negative emotion is a product of so many factors. Envi- environmental factors, biological factors, nature factors, nurture factors, personal decisions, products of actions against you, products of actions that you've done. It's spiritual, it's physical, it exists in a million degrees, and it, is, uh, it can be common anxiety, which is what I'm mostly talking about right now, by the way, and it can develop into general anxiety disorder, and it can develop into all manner of very specific anxieties and phobias uh, that have a lot to do with your biology. So it's very complex, and it's good news that the Bible is the one, is the place where you come to learn that first. The Bible told us that, not modern psychology. The Bible's been saying that uh, forever. There are lots of uh, verses about that, by the way, in Proverbs, but we we won't spend time on that. Now, the Bible also gives us a definition of anxiety, a helpful definition. A few definitions of anxiety, but you've got to uh, you've got to discern them from what it says about anxiety. So one is in the Old Testament. This was pointed out to me by um, another guy that that I think it's really helpful in, on anxiety, and he he talks about Jeremiah seventeen eight. Jeremiah seventeen eight, 
where you have some Hebrew poetry based on Psalm 1. And this is what it says. Um, it's talking about the, the blessed person like Psalm 1 does. And it says, this person is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And he does not wither. He does, sorry, he does not fear when heat comes. He's talking about bad circumstances. The person who's sticking with God, walking with God, is like a healthy tree. And when the heat comes, the leaves don't wither. There's no fear. That's what it says. You're healthy. You're okay. And then it says, and is not anxious in the year of drought. For the person does not cease to bear fruit. Now, this is Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, uh, we've got something called parallelism, where uh, the Hebrew poets often would, this happens in the Psalms all the time, where they'll say something, and then they'll say something right after that. And it means the exact same thing, but it's given in different words and different metaphors. Poet, all poets do it. Um, and so this is what's happening here. It says uh, that the healthy person that's walking with the Lord does not fear when the heat comes. And then line two, is not anxious in the year of drought. Meaning, what are the two synonyms? Fear and anxiety. Two different words, but they're synonyms. So the Bible is also saying anxiety is a type of fear. It's fearfulness. It's a type of fearfulness. And the simple way to say it is that fear is good, like the fear of the Lord, the fear of the bus coming down Princess Street, uh, the fear of driving the car for the first time. And some fear is bad. And anxiety is one of those bad fears. And one more time, it is a subset of bad fear where you construe hypothetical circumstances of loss about your future into your present, and you allow that to overtake your soul. All right, lastly for the first point, um, 20th century psychologists, this is pointed out to me by other teachers as well, 20th century psychologists call this uh, the, the word that was given is neurotic fear was one of the first things they talked about anxiety in the older editions of the psychological manuals. Neurotic fear, they understood it's a type of fearfulness, later to be called anxiety. And they used the word um, angst as kind of one of the, the primary ways to describe anxiety. Uh, angst that triggers biological mechanisms like adrenaline and the autonomic nervous system and all that sort of stuff. So you, you're... Um, the doctors in here can help me afterwards and tell me where I'm wrong. But my understanding is this, that when you are crossing Princess Street and you see that 34 coming, your adrenaline kicks in, your autonomic nervous system kicks in, and you cross the street. And it takes your body, and I can't say this the right way medically, but it takes your body a little bit to calm down and to reset, right? Uh, you've had that experience. I don't... It's an empirical reality. Uh, something, if you've been in a wreck, stuff like that, you, you're, you're triggered and it takes a while for your body to calm down. Anxiety does the same thing physically to us. And when you're in a consistent state of anxiety, fearfulness, you are constantly triggering those same biological functions, but you're not letting them stop. And so my understanding is, is that's what, creates the long-term physical issues that come quite often with anxiety. It, it does the same thing that immediate fearfulness does, but it makes it long-term and it's not meant to be that way. And so it has a real effect on your physical makeup, uh, on what happens in your body. Now, here's what the philosophers say about it in one minute. The philosophers say, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, all these great fellows, uh, 
they say that anxiety is uh, what we've said, but they say it slightly differently. They say that what anxiety is, is reading the fact that you are going to die backward into every experience of life. So they say that anxiety is, comes about because all of us ultimately know that ultimate loss is coming. And anxiety is a fear of losing things all throughout life that prophesies the ultimate loss that is to come, death. So anxiety is reading death backwards into the normal experiences of your life and being in a state of constant fearfulness. All right, that's what it is. Why is it so prevalent? Um, W.H. Auden, the English poet uh, who moved to the U.S., wrote The Age of Anxiety, his epic poem in 1947. Um, and uh, he called it The Age of Anxiety. They, people have basically taken that title and said, okay, yeah, this is the time we live in. We live in the age of anxiety. And that's very true. So if you look at the numbers, um, uh, there's a New York Times article from 2016. Seth Stevens Davidovitz, he uh, talks about this. He says that Google searches for anxiety increased 150% from 2004 to 2016. Diagnosed anxiety disorders are three times uh, higher this was in 2016, then a decade ago. Um, so he distinguishes between the fact that clinical anxiety is increasing and always increasing immensely and general common anxiety is being reported in all sorts of statistical ways, higher and higher all the time. Um, he talks about the rise in fretting in uncommon, persistent, hypothetical fears and apprehensiveness. Um, so both in a common way and a way that's clinically diagnosed as well. So this has been happening actually since about World War II. So this is irrefutable really that um, since about World War II, the statistics on anxiety have, have persistently increased. Um, why? Why are we so much more anxious than people that came before us? We are. Why? That's the big question. Are you anxious? Do you struggle with anxiety? Uh, most people do in the modern world. Why is that? Let me give you a few, few reasons, I think. One of the reasons people talk about is media and social media. So they talk about um, the 24-hour news cycle as being a source and say that uh, you know, when, you, when you turn on the news and you read about chemical attacks in Syria and COVID-19 stats you know, a couple of years ago and Israel and Gaza and Ukraine and Russia and school shootings and all the thousands of other things that you could see that are horrible that are going on today uh, from from 24-hour news cycle. Uh, the issue there is globalism. So we are now global people, but we were made to be local people primarily. So um, th- this happens all the time in the church. You can you can follow certain people on Twitter, and all they do is report the worst news about the church. Who did this? Who did that? Who's being uh, deposed for this and that? And uh, it, it makes it feel as if everything is always in a state of demise and decline. And instead, actually, what's happening is you're getting a global perspective and having to bear the weight of every community's problems all at once all the time. And it really wears you down and you don't realize it. 
So that's, that's one issue that people point out is the issue of globalism when we're meant to be primarily local. So the way uh, Oliver O'Donovan talks about this is he says, um, stop watching – this is a bit you know, hyperbolic, but he says, stop watching the 24-hour news cycle if you don't know uh, who your local al- alderman is. Is alderman a word we use here? No? Yes. Yeah, it local is. Council. Local council. Local council, yeah. So if you can't name the people in like your village's council that have been elected to office, don't watch the 24-hour news cycle. You're not local enough. Care about that first, right? And forget about the rest. Uh, that's a, a step towards improvement, perhaps. Um, so that's one issue people talk about. The other issue, obviously, you know, social media. So the comparison game, uh, life lived through trying to compete with others for authenticated identities. Now, even if you don't think you're playing that game when you are on social media, you, you have to, and you are. And it's an aspect uh, that seeps into your soul unconsciously authenticating your identity through comparison and likes. It's a necessity of the genre of social media, and it's happening to us all the time. Anxiety absolutely has risen immensely since the introduction of Facebook. And by the way, I was like first-generation Facebook. Like before, uh, when I was on Facebook, you had to have a usuniversity.edu address. None of you would have been allowed. Um... That, that's, the gener- that's the Facebook generation I, I was able to be a part of when Zuckerberg was like 18, 19 or something like that. Um, social media is a huge issue for this. All right, but let me say this. Media and social media cannot be the reason because we have seen immense increases, the reason, because we have seen immense increases since 1950 in anxiety problems and there was no 24-hour news cycle then and there was no social media. It's been happening for a lot longer, a lot longer. It's just a lot worse since these things. Okay, so let's explore a couple more. Here's what I think. Those are are exacerbating factors, but there's more than that. Number one, the modern post-enlightenment world, and I don't have time to get into details on these. I'm just going to give them to you. The modern post-enlightenment world that we live in has lost creation. So they live in a universe, but they don't live. Most people do not live in creation according to their own mindset. What is creation? Creation is a space that God made, full of meaning, full of purpose. And so most people live in a universe, they don't live in the midst of creation, meaning there's a loss of truth, there's a loss of meaning, there's a loss of purpose. We don't know what we're for. Uh, Modern people don't know what they're for. They live, they work, they entertain themselves, and we're entertaining ourselves to death. We work to get to Netflix, and there's a real loss of purpose. It's a loss of creation, actually. So that's one. That's a, that's a modern issue from the time of the Enlightenment forward. Secondly, uh, that creates a culture of acedia. Acedia? Acedia is the old word for boredom. So that's the old classical word for boredom. And it's slightly different than what we mean by boredom. My kids all the time say, I'm bored, I'm bored. And uh, acedia is similar to that, but slightly different. They mean I'm not being entertained enough is what they mean. Uh, but acedia is not a lack of stuff to do. It's actually frenzied activity and chronic busyness without purpose. That's acedia. So it's when you're chronically busy, but you don't really know why you do all the things you do. And you don't really know what is it you're ultimately trying to do with your busyness. So it's a follow-on from the loss of creation. It's chronic busyness. Okay, The modern world is chronic busyness without purpose. 
uh, everybody's chronically busy and we don't know why. Uh, actually, there was a, I don't have the, uh, the names of this on, my, on the top of my head right now, but in the 1960s, there was a study, I think it was at Stanford, on, um, you can go look this up and you'll find it, uh, on looking at te- technological advancement and how technological advancement would change uh, work hours, chronic busyness issues. And the idea was that, that they came to was that by the time of the year 2000, the average work week would be cut down to 22 hours a week because of technological advancement, artificial intelligence, machines that can do a lot of the labor we're currently doing. Now, what happened? We got all that stuff. We made it. We, we did the tech. And what, it, what happened? The work hour, the work times went up, not down. People just figured out other stuff to do. That's all that happened. And we didn't go backwards. We didn't rest more. We just worked more. Uh, the modern world is getting chronically and chronically more and more busy, but it doesn't know why. It doesn't know why. It doesn't know what, what that busyness is for. That's acedia. Third, that leads to a culture of consumerism. The modern world uh, wants you to be anxious. The modern West wants you to be anxious. It's actually, it drives the market. It's really important for the market for people to be regularly anxious. So that means discontent, restless, and worried, uh, fearful. Um, you, you, purposelessness is a marketable good. And, you know, you can say, look, um, you don't know who you are. You don't know what you're for. But the iPhone 15, it will help you. Okay, the iPhone 15, if you get a new iPhone every time one comes out, that will be so helpful for realizing your self-identity. That's actually how the market works. Um, You see, a loss of creation leads to acedia, which leads to consumerism. And anxiety is a market-driven good in in the world we live in. Uh, If you, it's just, this is a reality. I can't develop it any more than this. But if you don't know who you are as a modern person, you, you will seek identity by way of consumption. You'll consume to find satisfaction. Uh, different things, everybody will do, consume different things. Uh, and that drives the market. That's what social media is, by the way. It's, a, it's an aspect, it's a type of consumption. It's seeking endorsement and identity by way of affirmation at a maximal level, at a, with the maximum amount of people. It's an aspect of consumption. All right, finally, the final one. And we'll move quickly along to the third thing. Um, most importantly... The Enlightenment brought about what we call the turn to the self that undergirds all of this. And uh, the turn to the self is just this. It's that in modernity, modern people, all of us. Okay, this is us, by the way. I'm talking about us, Christians included. How I understand the purpose of my life, what constitutes the good life, how I understand my identity, how I understand everything in the world around me, begins with the way I feel. It begins with me. So that's the basic difference in modern and pre-modern people. Pre-modern people understand the purpose of their life, the definition of the good life, and their identity first from what people outside say about them. Modern people flipped that. I understand my identity, the purpose of the good life, and what I'm for first from the way I feel. And then only move outward. So modern people begin inside and move outward. 
pre-modern people begin outside and move inward. That's a very generalized but basic way. Now, if you go out that door and pick up what I think is probably the best book on that table, uh, Carl Truman's book, um, he'll, he'll just explain all this beautifully. Uh, this, is, this is what his book is about. Um, we focus on inwardness for who we think we are. Uh, let me give you an example of this. If you were to ask a pre-modern person, are you happy and content with your work, with your job? They would have no clue what that question means. Okay, if you ask a pre-modern person in St. Andrews, uh, are you content right now with the work that you, that you have and with the job that you've taken on? They wouldn't know what to say. They, they wouldn't even have a category for it, right? Because the pre-modern person, uh, the pre-modern person is a blacksmith. Why? Because their dad, because their dad was a blacksmith. And, uh, exactly. And, there's no, there's no plethora of choice out in front of them to curate the, their identity with job choices, right? Now, the modern world has increased and increased and increased in maximization of choice. And in one way, it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. But I get anxious trying to pick the movie I want to watch. I don't know about you guys. I struggle so badly. It, if it doesn't have a 7.1 or greater on IMDb, I will not watch it. And that creates anxiety, uh, uh, the maximization of choice and the ability to curate your identity in the turn to the self, and it's much more complex than this, but this is a simple way of saying it, is the undergirding reality of the increase in anxiety. Why? Here's why, and we'll move on. Here's why. Um, pre-modern people did not have very much control over their lives. So they were much more willing to lose control to God and to the voices around them Sometimes in really unfortunate ways. It's not all good. Not at all. Pre-modern people increasingly, I'm sorry, modern people increasingly, increasingly, increasingly have control over their lives. And the more control we have, the more choice we have means that you can curate your life. You can curate your identity uh, in, in largely any way you want. And that means that there is a whole lot more scope for failure. Now, if your dad tells you, I'm a blacksmith, and you're going to be a blacksmith, you're never going to ask a question about it as a pre-modern person. For the rest of your life, you're going to blacksmith, and you're going to make those swords. They're going to be great swords. Uh, but as a modern person, we are constantly saying, is this really me? Is this really what I want to do? Uh, is this really the choice I want to make? And the ability to curate your life and to be inward and then move outward means that there is so much more scope for messing it up. And that creates a whole load of hypothetical imagination of loss. That the decisions I'm constantly having to make, am I ruining it? Am I ruining it? Am I failing? Uh, the great paradox is that we are now autonomous, self-curated individuals who are desperately, desperately connected to a herd mentality. Okay, so the problem is, is this goes against our nature. Uh, so we want to curate everything, yet we also want the group, the objective, to tell us that that's okay, that it's good. Uh, so we could, we could talk right now about all sorts of things, about uh, sexual ethics in the modern world. How, on the one hand, it's I get to choose who I want to be and what I want to do. And on the other hand, I desperately need the group to tell me that's okay. All right, which is it? All right, th that's uh, one of the issues of the web of modern anxiety. 
Egocentricity and self-curation mean maximal self-centeredness. Now, uh, let me wrap things up. Let me just very quickly give you, back to the Bible for a second, a a slightly deeper dive into the definition quickly. Uh, Two passages, Luke chapter 10. So in Luke 10, uh, it's the Mary and Martha story. So I'm not, I'm not going to go through it right now, but I'll, I'll just explain it real quickly. Um, remember, Jesus comes to their house and they're, uh, they're, Mary, is, um, Mary is sitting at, at Jesus' feet. Martha is, we're told, quote, uh, distracted with much serving. That is a, uh, a term that is almost identical to the term for anxiety, miramnao. So when it says she was distracted with much serving and the, both those terms come from a, a verb that means to be cut into pieces. So what, is, what Jesus is saying, what they're talking about there is uh, she's, she's cut into pieces. She's, uh, she's meant to be sitting at Jesus' feet and she wants to, but she also really wants to you know, do all the house stuff at the same time. She's divided. She's split into two. Maranao, the word anxiety means the same thing. Uh, Matthew chapter six, it means to be split into two, to be serving uh, more than one thing at one time. If you look at Matthew chapter six in the structure, it's got um, five sets of negative commands and then one positive command that follows each of them. So you'll, you'll remember these. Just, just listen and think about it. When you pray, here's the negative command. Do not be like the hypocrites. Instead, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, right? Remember that? When you fast, do not look gloomy. Instead, do this. Uh, And on and on and on. And then the immediate context of the anxiety command, do not be anxious. The last of the negative commands is this. Um, And when it comes to money, do not store up treasures in heaven. Sorry, wrong. Do not store up treasures on earth. Uh, Instead, store up treasures in heaven. And then Jesus gives the explanation for why. And this is the thesis that governs the whole section. What does he say? Because you cannot serve two masters. The very next command in the next verse is, do not be anxious. And merimnao means to be split between two things, two masters. So Jesus says, the big problem we face is that we are split between masters and anxiety theologically is a being split between too many masters. It's trying to follow too many masters, mainly the master of self and God, the creator at the same time. All right. So here's the deeper dive. Anxiety uh, is is nothing but basically this, according to Jesus, common anxiety. It's when um, you are serving a false master, the master of mastering your own life, of seeking control. And so you're desperately concerned about hypothetical circumstances of loss in the future because it's an attempt to control life as if you are God who has planned out the end from the beginning. Uh, it's, it's kind of as simple as that. So common anxiety is a result of something in your life that is a creature that has taken hold of the heart that you want more than God. So uh, let me say it like this. Anxiety is nothing but a symptom of a deeper problem. Anxiety, um, one author talks about, is like when you're anxious, it's like smoke rising up from the fire. You know, you see the smoke above the tree line and you say there's something burning underneath it, but I can't see it. 
Anxiety tells you, it's the smoke that tells you there is something in your life that you want more than you want God himself. And that's why you're desperately fearful about losing that precious thing. It is the ring. It's the ring of power. There's some ring of power in your life, some precious. And you want it more than you want God himself, more than you want the marriage stuff of the lamb, more than you want the Garden of Eden, God. And so you're desperately afraid of losing that thing because you have desire for it more than you have desire for the one you were made for. It's being split. You got two masters. You want God, but you want something else more. That's why the end of Matthew 6 passage is what? Do not be anxious. Instead, what's the positive? Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be fine. So if you stop trying to have two masters and you learn to desire God and his kingdom more, anxiety will begin to start to dissipate. That's the, the Jesus's uh, prescription for it. Um, Lane, uh, no, who is this? Somebody named Lane, not Lane Tipton. Somebody named Lane that writes on anxiety. I can't remember. Um, this is what he says. Anxiety is a restlessness of when a person is trying to love equally both the creator and something precious in creation or when they are failing to love the creator at all and replacing the ultimate with something lesser. Uh, we have an old word for it. It's idolatry. That's the old word. Now, let me finish uh, briefly by just mentioning a few ways that you can begin to fight anxiety. Number one, let me just say this. Um, remember that anxiety is both a physical and spiritual reality. And that means that it very, very well may be the case. And I wish I had time to work this out with you. Normally, I teach this over six lectures. So I'm trying to do it one. <laughs> so um, uh, let me just say this, that it, it, it's, a, it's a spirit body problem. It very, very well may be the case that your chronic anxiety issues are a, a product of a thyroid problem, for example. Um, th- that may be the case. So you can never treat anxiety uh, uniformly. You can never blanket treat it. Every single person wrestling and struggling with anxiety has to be understood and talked to differently. There are all sorts of factors. Anxiety can be triggered by events that happen to you where you were passive. Uh, deep, deep pain from events in your life. And that's a very different thing from the common anxieties that are a result of idolatry, like I was just talking about. So let me make that nuance um, that there are thousands of forms of anxiety and they're not all the same. Not at all. And some are more problems with our souls and some are less. Okay, so let me just make that nuance. Number two, uh, one of the most important things I think we can do to deal with our anxiety is think about death a lot more. Okay, um, because anxiety, the philosophers are right. Anxiety really is an issue of reading the ultimate context of loss backward into the loss of things that we love dearly, the precious things in our lives. And actually, when we confront the reality of death and what the gospel really has to say about it, it can really help. Um, prayer is like death. Uh, every time you pray, you are in the act of prayer saying, I am not in control. I'm releasing. I'm releasing my absoluteness to you, God. And admitting 
my contingency and mortality before you. That's what prayer does. The more you pray, the more you will accept uh, the hard things about death, I think. Um, uh, here's another way of saying it um, in brief. If Jesus Christ really is the better Adam that died for his bride, then the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming, no matter what happens in your life right now. And that means everything's going to be okay. And that's, that in itself is a death, a death to your choices, a death to the self, a death, a death to your small desires. And so thinking a lot about death, I think, can really help us. All right, uh, let me just do one or two more. The third thing, is this three? I don't know. The third thing is focus on the beatific vision. What's the beatific vision? The beatific vision is the theological name we give to something very simple, and that's that you were made to see God. Um, Psalm 27, I didn't get to it in the first talk. Psalm 27, David uh, says, One thing I've asked of you, Lord, that I might see your face. So David understood uh, in the midst of a, a passage where he's anxious in Psalm 27 that I was made to see your face. Okay, um, here's the big idea. This is the real thesis, I would say, of this talk. Anxiety arises in the context of the loss of the vision of God. You were made to walk in the Garden of Eden with God and to see God. And because of sin, we've lost that. As anxiety arises in that context of the loss of the vision of God. And that means that the more you can focus on your life's purpose as seeing God, being with God, dwelling with God, the more I think proportionally anxiety will diminish. Because if you are going to see God, and you are, if you believe the gospel today, everything's going to be okay. No matter what happens. Lastly, Philippians 4, 4 to 7 um, tells us exactly what to do. What to do. It says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So Philippians 4 says, uh, don't be anxious. That's how it starts. And then it says, instead, cast your cares upon him. So I think probably the most important and simple thing I can say is that if you're, str- if you're a person that's really struggling with uh, persistent anxiety right now, um, what you do is you pray your fear immediately. So your, your anxiety is not going to go away like that. That's not how it works. Instead, you've got to habituate your spiritual life away from anxiety. And it takes time. And the most important prescription is this. As soon as you feel anxious, the first thing you need to do is immediately pray that fear. Pray that anxiety straight to God and take it to God. Uh, uh, the late um, director of CCF, David Pallison, he said, he said that um, somebody asked him once, this is the, I'll close with this, what's the difference in worry and prayer? What's the difference in anxiety and prayer? And he said, um, he said, prayer is when you're anxious towards God. Uh, be anxious towards God. Pray your fears immediately. That's what the Psalms are. Pray your fears immediately. Uh, habituate yourself to that. And I think you'll find uh, real help in the anxieties of your life. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that you treat anxiety in the Bible. And we thank you, Father, um, that... 
you don't leave us to you don't leave us to think that uh, our psychological issues and complexities are something um, that are surprising and untouchable, Lord. Instead, you you come down in the gospel and Jesus talks to us not as a uh, a lawgiver saying, don't be anxious. Instead, Jesus, you said, don't be anxious, little child in Luke. Uh, so we thank you for that, that this is, uh, this is your, your comfort to us. Don't be anxious. You don't have to be anxious. Uh, teach us that, Lord. Work that into our hearts. Help us to uh, long for the vision of God more than the things of this world so that we would not be afraid to lose things. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.